was talking to a friend recently, pastor friend, and I said, well, you know, I think I'll kind of gloss over Joseph because they've been listening to this Genesis series for so long. So we're going to just move on to Moses. Oh, no. All right. Please allow me to open with a word of prayer. Bow with me, would you please? Thank you, Father, for your gracious gift of Jesus, who shed his blood to cover our sins and then received all honor and glory when you raised him from the grave. Thank you for sending your spirit to lead us into the truth of your mercy. And as we look into your word this morning, I pray you would encourage us with the joy we have in knowing truth. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable to you and edifying for your congregation. Father, you are our rock and our redeemer. And it's in the name of your matchless son, we pray. Amen. In the 1992 film, A Few Good Men, Jack Nicholson spoke perhaps five of the most familiar words in film history. In response to Lieutenant Caffey's statement, I just want the truth, Nicholson playing Colonel Jessup, he screamed, you can't handle the truth. And ironically, he's right. Because before God's spirit brings people to life, no one can truly handle the truth. No one knows the truth. The clearest example is Jesus before Pilate in John 18. After Jesus was arrested by the Jewish leaders, they they brought him before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And Pilate said this. He said, They're saying that you are the king of the Jews. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate was confused. So he said, so you are a king. John 18, 37, Jesus said this. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate replied with those universal words of question that we all have. What is truth? Well, this morning we come to the last major section of Genesis. And I thought it would be appropriate to finish the rest of this book with a a new series, a series within a series that I've titled Joseph, A Man for All Seasons. Now, the phrase was coined by the 16th century writer Robert Whittington to describe someone who faces every circumstance in life, whether it be blessing or disaster. They face every circumstance in life with a character strength that always brings them to do the right thing. And in the life of Joseph, we find a man for all seasons. So in this introduction, I want to briefly review what we've learned and then preview what's ahead 
in the remaining chapters of Genesis. So I'll discuss four major events in redemptive history that the Bible reveals as the truth. Then I'll illustrate four points of truth about God from the lives of people that we've studied so far. And finally, I'll point out four ways that Joseph prefigures or foreshadows the redeeming work of Christ, who is the truth. At the end, I'll suggest how we can have a deep hope and become men and women who know the truth, can handle the truth, and are people for all seasons as Joseph was. Now, the handout will help you capture these key truths. And the one big idea from what we'll do this morning is this. God has revealed truth to those he has redeemed. God has revealed truth to those he has redeemed. Now, in March 2019, we began this series with the Hidden in Plain Sight sermons. And they covered Genesis 1 through 11. Those chapters showed us events that were veiled in the, in the prehistory of time, but they described the very dawn of creation. And here we found three pivotal events of history that have happened and one that was promised and is yet to come. And they reveal four truths about our reality that help us to handle the truth. Now, in Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created. Five words. Not the most famous five words in film history, but what R.C. Sproul called the five most um, the five most controversial words ever uttered in human history. In the beginning, God. The first three tell us there was a beginning, and most people don't have a problem with that. It's the next two. God created. And then that's followed by the all-encompassing statement, the heavens and the earth. Well, we have a problem with that because if there's a creator, then we're creatures. There's a creator, we're responsible to him as creatures. Genesis 1, 1 then goes on to tell us that we were created in God's image. Well, that just compounds the problem because if God is a holy God, we are creatures not only accountable to him, but we are morally accountable to him. And that's what makes the truth so hard to accept so many people. But regardless of whether we accept it or not, the evidence of an uncaused, first cause creator who made the heavens and the earth is very difficult to deny. Just look around. And the evidence of being made in our, cre- our creator's image is equally compelling. So that's the first great event, creation. Second great event is called the fall, because it describes when the man and the woman that God created in his image fell into sin and God's good creation began to unravel. Genesis 2 describes 
how God placed the first humans in a garden temple and gave them the task of protecting and expanding that garden so that the entire earth would be filled with imagers of God to worship him as they were created to do. And he gave that man and woman all things to enjoy except for two things. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of, the, uh, uh, the tree of life. Those two were the only restrictions, and they would eventually be theirs, but in God's timing, not their own. And although he warned them of the consequences, Genesis 3 tells us that they disobeyed God, they took from the forbidden tree, and it brought death into creation. They fell into sin, and it ruined everything. You see, we must never underestimate the impact of the fall. It changed everything. And we know in our hearts that the world is somehow broken, and God has told us why. It's because of that first sin and all of the sins that have followed. That's the second great epoch in history, the fall. The next major event in history came almost immediately afterward. God announced that he would gradually reveal his plan to restore what humanity had lost. And instead of wiping out the co- the, his entire creation, instead of wiping the cosmic slate clean, God continued to sustain his good creation, even though it was now marred by our sin. He continued to create to sustain that creation, and even more amazing, he promised that an offspring from the woman would one day come and undo the damage that had been done, and he would crush the head of the tempter, the one responsible for it, even though his heel would be bruised. And following that, he would renew a creation to a state more glorious than it was at first. He would be a king. He'd bring a kingdom without end. It would be a kingdom without end for his people to live with him forever and in peace and harmony. But as I said, it was a gradual unfolding. It was veiled at this point. Now, the promise comes in Genesis 3.15, that great verse uh, that is called the, the first announcement of the gospel. And then we see partial uh, completion of it all in John 3.16 where it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And now we live in the time when the king has come, but not all of his subjects are yet born. So we live in the reality of a kingdom not fully established, but we do so with confidence because God's word has told us of these events and their meaning. It's the foundation of the truth. With the illumination of the Spirit, we know with confidence that these things are true. And this beautiful final kingdom that will come from the Creator is because He desires to display His unmatched infinite glory to the creatures He has made who will find their greatest joy in Him. We're all looking for something that fulfills, that 
the only thing that fulfills is Jesus. All I have, all I need, and all I trust is Jesus. We just sang it. And even though we rejected him, God did not reject us, but he embraced us, not just repairing the damage we'd done, but renewing it to the height of perfection one day that we can't even imagine. And that brings us to the fourth great epoch or period in history. It's called the consummation. And as I said, this hasn't happened yet, but we look forward to it. John, the Apostle John was given a vision of it. He describes it this way in Revelation 21. He writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things brings us to our first fill-in, and it captures these four key periods of history and the truth they provide. First is creation, Genesis 1, then the fall, Genesis 3, 16, sorry, I've got the one. The redemption, uh, I'm sorry, the fall of Genesis 3, 6. Redemption then comes in Genesis 3, 15, the first announcement. And John 3.16, the announcement of God's love in his son. And then finally, consummation. We just read of that in Revelation 21.5. These four truths help us to understand our world. Since that tragic fall, God has been patiently working all things toward this this glorious end. And while we don't know all that we would like to know about this coming age, we wait eagerly knowing the words of our Savior are trustworthy and true. We're just saying, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And the words, with with every breath, I long to follow Jesus. For he has said what? That he will bring me home. Where did he say that? He said it in John 14. He actually asked it in the form of a question. He said to his disciples, I said that in my father's house are many rooms, and that I go, I go there to prepare a place for you so that you may be there with me. If I, have, if I have gone to prepare that place, will I not come again so that you will be with me? Trustworthy and true are those words. So there's four 
epochs of history or periods of history that reveal the truth. Let's look now at four truths about God that are revealed in the lives of the people that we have been studying in Genesis. Now, in March 2020, we began a series called Infinite Grace and Ultimate Blessing. And that covered Genesis chapters 12 through 36, where we followed the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When we add a fourth, Joseph, it will give us four truths about God. Faith, each, each of these people of Israel illustrated a basic spiritual truth. And the amazing thing is in God's word, the order in which they appear in time is the order in which God manifests them in us for our salvation. I'll explain that. Genesis 12 introduces Abram is what he was first called, and God will later rename him Abraham. And Abram shows us the truth of God's sovereignty in divine election. Abram lived in Ur, just south of Babylon. It was a city-state in Sumeria, ancient Mesopotamia. His people worshipped a deity called Nana. It's almost as good as the Egyptian frog god Hapi. Nana. The city's name was literally the abode of Nana. A ziggurat, like the Tower of Babel, housed the shrine to this moon god. And it was out of this pagan culture that God called Abram and told him to go to a foreign land and made this promise to him in Genesis 12, verse 2 and following. God said, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. God chose Abraham. Abraham didn't choose God. He had no idea there was a God. The only God he knew was Nana, who was no God at all. And the danger he would face in leaving the protection of his people in that ancient time to go to a foreign land and live among foreign peoples, that's incomprehensible to us. We can't imagine what that would have been like. But God called. And when God calls, people respond. People respond. Abraham took his barren wife, Sarah, and off they went. Now, 25 years later, Abraham was still waiting for the son that was necessary if he was going to be a great nation. If it was going to be through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. 25 years, no son. He finally appeals to God as his faith wavers. He says, will Eliezer or Damascus be my heir? Some guy that was a servant for him. And as his faith wavered, God took him outside on a moonless night. Now imagine, no light pollution on earth. He says, Abram, look at the stars. Count them if you can. 
greater will your offspring be. And Abram's response is in Genesis 15, 6. And it's the central foundation stone for the gospel. It says, And Abram believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, credited him, Abram, with righteousness. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited him with righteousness. It's the foundation of the gospel because it says that by faith alone, righteousness comes as a legal declaration from a holy God. Faith is the currency of redemption. Faith counts us as righteous. Faith is a gift of God, the one who called Abram, and it's the same faith that's given to every believer and saves them in the very same way Abraham was saved. There is no difference. We're all saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. This is a gift of pure grace, and it comes from the mysterious, sovereign choice of God's electing decision. So Abram, Abraham reveals the divine election. Next, Abraham's son, Isaac, shows us the truth of divine sonship. Sonship. Now, the idea of sonship here is, in, is important. The application uh, runs from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. Being a son or being in sonship means that you inherit all of the riches of the father. So it doesn't matter if you're male or female, sonship applies to both. Sonship applies, it's the term that says that if you are in Christ, then you will inherit all of his riches because you've been adopted into his family through Jesus Christ. So sonship is important. It bestows the right of inheritance. And Abraham's firstborn son, Ishmael, was not the son, divine sonship. He was the son of Sarah's impatience. Abraham's wavering in his faith, and Sarah says to him, hey, go into my, my maid Hagar. We'll help God out. And we know the results. Ishmael's the son, but he's not the, divine, the son of divine sonship. He's the son of the flesh. He's the son of the old nature. But on the other hand, Isaac. Isaac was the miraculous son born of Sarah. And he foreshadows the divine nature of Jesus the son. And we see this in how Isaac responded to the biggest crisis in his life. It came in Genesis 22. God called Abraham, his father, and he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall show you. God called. Abraham responded. He loaded up the necessary supplies. He and Isaac set out for the three-day journey. And as they approached, Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And Abraham said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, 
God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both went. And in verse 9, we read this. When they came to the, to the place in which God had told them, Abraham built an off, altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Greatest crisis in both their lives. Imagine the faith of Isaac. He's a teenager. He's willingly laying on this altar, allowing himself to be bound by the Father. But imagine the faith then of the eternal divine Son who laid aside all the glory of heaven and descended to earth where he would allow himself to be bound. And unlike Isaac, there would be no reprieve. He would allow himself to be crucified, dead, and buried. Now, the faith of Jesus was truly infinite, but Isaac's story foreshadows the trust in God that would, would, would be the, 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 what would strengthen the Israelites through their exodus journey that was to come. They were the ones who heard this. Moses wrote all this. They were the ones who first heard these stories, and it would be the faith of Isaac and the demonstration of divine sonship that would encourage them because God had told them that they were his people. He had created them. They were his sons. Divine sonship illustrated by Isaac. Now, third... Jacob. Jacob's probably the most familiar story to us because we've been following him all the way from his dysfunctional childhood and the family deceit and a string of broken relationships. But at every turn, we see God's divine discipline that ultimately will bring Jacob slowly and surely to overcome his human nature, such to the extent that at the end of all of that turmoil that Jacob had had in his life, finally, as he's about to meet Esau, and it's another big crisis in his life, he wrestles with this strange man at night and asks for the blessing. And as part of the blessing, the strange man says, you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. El, meaning God, and Isra, meaning perseveres or wrestles with. It reflected Jacob's perseverance, and it also reflected the blessing that he received by God's divine discipleship and discipline in his life. Jacob shows us that, that our struggles then with pride and self-sufficiency and all the things that we struggle with in this life of sanctification. That's the big word meaning being conformed to the image of Christ. All of these things, God will continue with his divine discipline because he has promised that the good work that he began in you, he will continue until the day it's complete in Christ Jesus. The truth of divine discipline is that it's a gracious act of the sovereign God, and it's the truth that Jacob's life reveals. 
We have a fourth, Joseph. We haven't come to his life yet. Well, we, in his life, we find this truth. Suffering is the path to glory. Now, we may resist the idea of election because it goes against our fallen sense of fairness. We like divine sonship because it allows us to imagine the riches of God that will be ours in Christ. And we struggle under the truth of divine discipleship and discipline, but we find some relief knowing from the writer of Hebrews that God disciplines those he loves for their good. But the idea of suffering before the crown, we don't like that one. We don't like that one. Bearing our cross before receiving our our reward, this is a truth that we cannot handle unless we remember that Jesus faced the greatest suffering possible. The greatest suffering possible. Oh, there have been people who have suffered throughout history. There's no doubt about that. We know that. But consider this. Jesus allowed his creatures to vilify him and kill him. He allowed them to spit on him, to revile him, to falsely convict him, and to nail him to a cross. But you know what? It was necessary because unless he shed his blood, sinless blood, God could not declare us sinners sinless. Jesus faced the cross, Hebrews 12 says, with joy. With joy. Knowing that he would be securing the redemption of each and every person that God the Father had given him in his selection of divine election and that had persevered through time. Jesus faced that cross with joy. It was necessary for him to suffer to obtain his crown of glory. And it was awarded to him for his obedience in this redemptive plan that the Father, Son, and Spirit had ginned up in eternity past. And he is glorified, is he not? Well, let's see if he is. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth because of his suffering to glory. And as our Savior walked the path of suffering, we too will walk a similar path as God ordains. But what he endured on the cross enables him to minister to us in our suffering. And we'll unpack this truth further as we follow Joseph through the last chapters of Genesis. But this brings us then to our second fill-in. Help us to capture these four truths revealed by these four people about our God. Four people reveal four truths. 
Abraham is divine election. Genesis 2, 12, verse 2. Isaac, divine sonship. Genesis 22, 7. Jacob, divine discipline. Genesis 32, 28. That's the wrestling match. And Joseph, suffering before glory. We see that in our text here in Genesis 37, and we'll culminate in Genesis 50, verse 20. These four biblical truths are revealed through these four people in the order in which they occur in every believer. God elects, he gives faith, that faith bestows sonship on men and women, he lovingly disciplines, and he ministers to us in our suffering. And it's by understanding these truths that we are able to accept what James says in James 1. He says, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's the path to glory. Finally, let's look more closely at how the life of Joseph foreshadows the life of of Christ. Um, If you have your Bible, I'd ask you to open it to Genesis 37. The story of Joseph begins in Genesis 37, and that's where we'll be next time when we return to the series, The Man for All Seasons. And our focus here is verses 2 through 4. Now, as I said, the story of Abraham being the foundation of the gospel makes it the most important story in Genesis. But it's not the longest. The longest story in Genesis, in fact, the longest character study in the entire Bible except for Jesus, is the story of Joseph. Joseph's story is the longest because he is the one that in so many ways foreshadows Christ. Now, it's surprising that little is said about Joseph in the New Testament. And in fact, he's mentioned only four times. He's mentioned in, um, in John 4, verse 5, where we're told that he was given a plot of land near Sychar in Samaria. Now, that's going to become an important detail in the chapters ahead. But that's the first mention. Acts 7, Stephen mentions Joseph in his historical review that resulted in Stephen's being stoned with the apostle Saul, not the apostle Paul yet, but Saul standing nearby holding people's cloaks. In Hebrews 11, it mentions Joseph in the hall of faith, and then his name is in Revelation 7, in reference to the 12,000 men from the tribe of Joseph. But although he doesn't get much press in the New Testament, what's striking is a number of ways Joseph's life prefigures the life of Christ. Now, we're going to look at these in depth in in the coming series, so I'll mention just four for now. First, we see the love of his father. Look at Genesis 37, verse 3. Now Israel, that's Jacob, 
loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Jacob's love for Joseph's points to the father's love for his son, Jesus. And the robe points to the authority that each son had. So just as Jacob sent Joseph as his authorized representative to his brothers, so too Jesus came as the father's representatives to his own. Matthew 3 tells us of love, God's love for Jesus. It says this, when Jesus was baptized, behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And later, after passing the temptations in the wilderness, Matthew 4, 17 says, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, the Father loved him and gave him the authority to declare the coming kingdom of God. Just like Joseph was sent by his father as Jacob or Israel's authorized representative to his brothers. So that's the first way. Son loved representative. Second, Joseph and Jesus both identified and opposed evil. Identified and opposed evil. Verse 2 says, Joseph brought a bad report of his brothers to his father's. Now, this doesn't make Joseph a tattletale because the robe is a symbol of authority that he was wearing from his father. He was opposing whatever evil his brothers were doing, and as we've learned in the past chapters about his brothers, they were always up to some form of evil. Joseph, like Jesus, was a truth speaker, and both were hated because we can't handle the truth. One New Testament verse is really sufficient at this point to show how the brother's hatred for Joseph foreshadowed the hatred that Jesus would experience. John 7, verse 7. The setting is this. It's, his brothers are about to go up to, the, to, to the, the great festival in Jerusalem. It was required. And they asked Jesus, are you going up to the festival? He says, no, no, it's not my time yet. His brothers kind of challenged him on that point. Then Jesus said this to them. They were unbelievers. He said this, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world hates me because I tell the truth. In other words, those who tell the truth will be hated by those who can't handle the truth. That brings us to the third parallel then. Joseph and Jesus were hated by their own. By their own. Verse 4 tells us that Joseph's brothers hated him so deeply they couldn't even speak to him. 
because his life brought out two reactions in people. In every human heart, there are two responses to the truth, love and hatred. Love and don't care. He was loved by his father, Joseph was, but he was hated by his brothers. It's the same with Jesus. In verses 11 and 12 of the opening chapter of John's gospel, we see this. John writes this, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, sonship. Like Joseph, Jesus revealed people's hearts, and they either hated him or they loved him. When Jesus challenged the Pharisees, they hated him. But when he challenged the sin of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, she loved him. And she went to tell other people all about him. She embraced him as God's truth. Truth either exposes the worst or it brings out the best in every human heart. Now, finally, the suffering of Joseph and Jesus was God's ordained path to the throne. We've mentioned this already. Both were hated, both betrayed by their own, both sold for a slave's price, both beaten, both mocked, both scorned, both imprisoned. Between two thieves, Jesus was crucified. Between two um, liars in prison stood Joseph. Both would ascend to the throne, Joseph to the right hand of Pharaoh, and the immeasurably greater honor for Jesus to be seated at the right hand of God. Here's our last fill-in. Knowing the glory that is ours to come and the ministry Jesus provides enables us to endure the suffering we face in this world. The original hearers of Genesis were the people descended from those God saved from death by famine through Joseph. Joseph's story is the only thing that made sense of their exodus, the only thing that made sense of who they were as a people. And in a greater way, we are comforted like Israel was long ago by the presence of Christ on our journey. Jesus is our all in all because it's only Jesus that makes sense of our lives, of why we're here. And he comforts us on this journey as we are on this great exodus to our final home. The great Dutch theologian Herman Bavink explains it this way. He said, the time between his first and second coming is one of continuous coming of Christ to the world. He is applying to the church and to his people through his word and spirit from the moment of his ascension, the benefits of his death on our behalf. Can you feel it? Can you feel him ministering to us? 
because he is applying through his spirit, he is applying these truths to our heart and ensuring us of the benefit of his death on our behalf. So we endure all things by the continuous presence of Christ in the gathering of his congregation, his people. We may fail to see it, but Jesus is the Lord of time and the King of ages, the Alpha and the Omega. And yes, we experience suffering now, but Christ continues to come to us in our histories, in our ministries, in our misery, minute by minute, day by day, year in and year out. He is always at work in his people. Can you feel it? More than just handle this truth, we find strength and hope and perseverance and joy in the truth that Jesus died for sins according to the scripture, was buried, and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. That's the gospel. That statement, that is the truth for all ages. And knowing that truth means that we can handle the truth. Let's pray.